Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, it's me, Amara. Welcome to the Trans Flash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. So the Trans Flash Podcast, fortunately, is back for another year. And we all know that this year is going to be full of challenging and consequential news and stories and events that are really going to test and try us all. But today I want to start off by focusing 2024 on trans creativity, specifically trans filmmaking. The annual Sundance Film Festival starts off today, and that's a place where films and all formats that will be dominating our culture for years to come are screened and lifted up. That's why I'm talking to the people behind The Stroll about how films are made, what it takes, and what it means for those who have been historically marginalized to find center stage at a place like Sundance. The Stroll is an award-winning documentary that tells the story of New York City's meatpacking district from the perspective of the trans women of color who once engaged in sex work and forged deep connections there. It's an incredible film, featuring intimate interviews and archival footage from the 70s through the early 2000s, which touch upon a piece of personal, political, and economic history of New York City during this time. This incredible storytelling won a special jury award for Clarity of Vision at Sundance Film Festival in 2023 and debuted on HBO over the summer. So today I'll talk to The Stroll's directorial team about how the film got made, what it's like to make it big, and how all the aspiring filmmakers out there can be future Sundance winners. First, I'm joined by producer, artist, and co-director of The Stroll, Zachary Drucker, who shares her approach to creative collaboration. I feel like a messenger on Earth for these stories, and I believe that we need to move away from this idea of a singular genius and be more egalitarian with how we conceive of storytelling. Next, I'll talk with filmmaker and co-director of The Stroll, Kristen Lovell, about how she came up with the idea of the film and the necessity of keeping all of our stories alive. So it was important to, you know, to show that human experience that we are here. You know, you talk about us all the time, but you don't want to hear from us. But before we get to these engaging conversations, let's start, as always, with some trans joy. Filmmaking is a team effort. From producers to production assistants, it takes so many people working tirelessly behind the scenes to make movie magic. And The Stroll was no exception. 
Melmel Sukakawa Moring is an editor who's worked on reality TV, scripted series like Reservation Dogs, and feature films including The Lady and the Dale and House of Cardin. They were also a key member of the Strolls production team, editing down countless hours of archival footage and interviews to bring this story to life. Here's Melmel to tell us more. Whenever you're able to show up to a job and just be, there's a relief of pressure, I think, when you just show up and you're like, I see you, you see me, now let's make this together. And it was just so much fun. There was just such a joy to it. And I think that was there from the very beginning. You know, there was only a few of us, honestly. It was a very small group, but we all were so committed to Kristen's vision and to telling this story. And I think when you get to work on anything that just makes your heart sing and feels important, it makes like the long, long months a lot easier. Mel Mel, you are trans joy. I can't wait to get into this conversation with Emmy-nominated producer, director, and multimedia artist, Zachary Drucker. Zachary has been bringing beautifully crafted stories about women and gender-expansive people to mainstream audiences for years. Her vision was key on the Hulu original documentary, Queen Maker, The Making of an It Girl, and the HBO documentary series, The Lady and the Dale, where she served as a director. Zachary also co-directed the 2023 documentary, The Stroll, alongside Kristen Lovell. Her work has been recognized by many influential institutions. As we mentioned, she is Emmy-nominated producer for the docuseries, This Is Me, and also worked as a producer on the series Transparent and the film Biosphere. Beyond the big screen, Zachary's multimedia work has been exhibited in prestigious institutions like the SF MoMA, the Whitney Biennial 2014, and the Hammer Museum. Zachary, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast to talk about The Stroll. Oh, thank you for having me, Amara. What a gift every time I get to convene with you. Thank you so much. I think last time we were talking about Tea for Tea love and exploring what that meant. Yes. And so today, this is this is a more professional conversation, I think. <laughs> but this is Tea for Tea love, too. It is Tea for Tea. <laughs> Two tourists, trans women who came together to tell this incredible story. And I feel like the the story of the stroll is so much about trans people coming together to create innovative ways of surviving a world that's very hostile to us. I didn't know that you were a Taurus as well. Maybe I did. I you know, twenty twenty three has been one of those years. I can't remember what I know and what I don't know. <laughs> yes, I absolutely am. May fourteenth. Are you a Taurus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. We're, yeah, yeah. We we're born uh, in the same week. Stop. Yeah. We've yeah. never talked about that, and it's we. Strange. That's because I'm not know. an astrology person, but that's probably why. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Astrology is where <laughs> I lose my career card because, you know, everyone starts, like, quoting Chani Nichols or Moons and whatever, and my eyes mm-hmm. glaze over. So that's probably why. 
<laughs> I, I mean, and certainly within the community as well, when you find your siblings who share your sign, I think there's always a little seed of being anchored in a similar way in the world. And I, especially with the tourist trans women, I'm always like, it's a special connection, for sure. Because Taurus women are, like, special. And so that is a part of the driver, as you say, for this connection that you had with her, yeah. right, and Kristen, and making this this amazing film. Absolutely. I mean, I would just say that we anchor the people around us. You know, we are fixed earth. We are, like, the ultimate in being rooted. And Kristen embodies that so beautifully as a person who has held kind of the history and the legacy of the stroll. I mean, she was networking in Facebook groups and creating a community where a community had been dissolved. And she showed up to the Whitney Museum when they reopened in, I guess it was 2015, and Matt Wolf, our producer, also a tourist, was presenting video work from Paper Tiger, which was a queer collective that was doing anti-gentrification work when the piers were closed in the 2000s to renovate, you know, the Christopher Street Pier. So all this development started happening around 2000, 2001, which incidentally was when I moved to New York City from Syracuse, New York. I was 18. And Kristen was a co-founder of Fierce, which was a queer youth organization. Mm -hmm. And I was flyering for them as well. And so we actually had this kind of overlap in real time. I think the stories that she called out as Matt was presenting these videos, I think in the Q&A, she, she stood up and said trans women used to sleep in cardboard boxes where this museum once stood. And they started a conversation and ultimately it led to the stroll. There's so much to unpack there and I'm looking forward to my conversation with her about it. But I think the essential part is that the idea for the film was something that she started to prepare for even before she knew she was going to make this documentary. Like, it was a long-term instinct that she had to preserve this history, right? And to document it along the way in these really powerful and insightful ways. But one of the things that I think that's really important with your role in this development story and what I think is really important and a part of filmmaking that our audience may not totally understand, because filmmaking is is weird. It's kind of opaque. You take it out of outside of itself and it doesn't make sense to anyone. Yes. Is kind of the role of a producer and the importance of us actually coming together in community to get things made. So it's Kristen's idea. She's the director, right? It's clearly her creative vision. It's her network. It's this thing that she's built up. But that's a long way from having an idea and being able to have that skill set that she had and clearly gifted in so many ways to actually getting something made within the machine of Hollywood. So can you just take us from the time that she met Matt standing up and speaking up for herself to how she got connected to you to help make this project? 
They continued the conversation and ultimately Matt presented the idea to HBO. I was just delivering The Lady in the Dale, the series, and it was uh, just an undeniable package, I think, when we started that conversation at the end of 2020 because HBO was our partner from the very beginning on this. They were interested. They provided $10,000 for us to edit a sizzle reel, which was in-depth, included archival that we had found and two interviews with Uh, two of our subjects that we just did on the phone. It was simple. It was just a a simple sizzle that revealed what the story would become ultimately. And they said yes within weeks (laughs) of, of us sending that sizzle to them. And we embarked on the journey of the film. You know, every project I've ever worked on has its own energetic imprint. And this stroll of all the things I've worked on really wanted to come into the world. It was the most graceful, easeful process making the film. There was just a tremendous amount of of harmony. And not all projects are like that. Some some projects are really chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, depending on what the subject is and the people that come into it, the the constellation of energies that are a part of shepherding it into the world. And the stroll, it, it was just a history that had been too long concealed. And just to speak to the bigger ecosystem of trans representation, when the trans tipping point happened, because trans people and sex work were so ubiquitous to scripted treatments in television and film, it was really overdone. In the effort to create more robust representations of trans life, there was sweeping sex work under the rug. And it's really inaccurate (laughs) to understanding trans life because we have survived for centuries in the underground economy. That is the, the only way that trans people have survived by being petty criminals and sex workers and grifters. It's just in every element of trans history, that if we were living as a gender other than the one that we were assigned at birth, we had to be adaptable and very innovative in how we survived. So the story of the stroll is just, you know, I think for this generation of people it felt like they were erased in this kind of moment of trans stories becoming more mainstream. And it was uh, really overdue, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about 
you know, why HBO would turn to you, who had had some experience making a film with them, to help shepherd this project. Of course, every series needs a producer, so that makes sense. That has to be someone. So the fact that it's you is a gift. But what is the rationale? I'm just trying to give people kind of a primer for, like, you can have an idea and have a vision and know how it's going to unfold, but there are these other people in the process that you're going to have to interact with to help make your project. And so for you, what did you see your role as in the stroll? When you woke up every day on this project, you said to yourself, my role is to do what? (laughs) Um, Be a messenger and a good collaborator. And ultimately, I feel like a messenger on earth for these stories. And I believe that we need to move away from this idea of a singular genius and be more egalitarian with how we conceive of storytelling. I believe that we humans are hardwired to tell stories because it helps us deal with our mortality. And it's one of the most ancient traditions, and it's what differentiates us from other species. And so we are doing the most noble work we can do when we tell our stories. And I really encourage young and emerging creators to be expansive with community building. I think that's essential to getting your story out there and to not be guarded or too precious because ideas have to be in a state of flow. Like we have to put things out there and let them iterate, let other people imagine and build on to what we're doing we're entering, you know, the age of Aquarius this year with Pluto. Speaking of astrology, <laughs> we're I knew we were going to get there it. again. And <laughs> and the age of Aquarius is about the collective, and it's about shared resources. And it will take all of us doing this work side by side for the rest of our lives to push the struggle for for trans equity forward. So like the women of the stroll banding together and looking out for each other, we are implored to do the same in our professional endeavors, in the realm of storytelling. And I just feel deeply committed to that and did so every day on the stroll. We were really, there was essentially five people who created this film by meeting every single day on Zoom, Monday through Friday, for many, many months. <laughs> yeah, It was not a film that had like a clear beginning, middle, or end. It was something that you we really had to build. So in a film project, right, there is the business and the mechanical part of getting the film made. And then there is the vision, the creative piece, the human and the emotional intelligence that you need in order to, especially in documentary, get the best out of people in order to have a product 
which shines. And often the role of the producer connects those two things, right? You're yeah. connecting the vision with the business piece, thinking about the budgets and what kind of crew you're going to have and what the deadlines are and all of that particular piece of it and in that role. And I'm wondering, how do you balance those two things within yourself? Like, is your brain just naturally wired to function in those two ways? So, you know, you can turn to Kristen and talk to her as a creative and then turn to the execs at HBO and talk to them in a mindset that is much more business-minded and linear or are those skills that you developed? Oh, they're absolutely skills that I developed. I don't think that they are inherent, but the things that we do early in our lives always inform what we're doing presently and oftentimes in ways that you don't expect or don't seem obviously connected. And so... If you are an usher at a movie theater, if you are a barista at Starbucks, if you're doing something that is customer service oriented or any kind of service oriented, like that informs how you move through the world. It informs your ability to have conversation and to connect with people. So all of the things that listeners are doing out there in their lives will benefit them in some way that they don't expect down the line. So, you know, and for me in my 20s, I worked in nightlife, like many trans women, you know, mm -hmm. that got me through. I worked in clubs and bars um, until I was able to get a foothold in daytime work, let's say. <laughs> and then coming on to Transparent, 10 years ago, that was a real leap for me in navigating the corporate world. And I had to kind of learn when to push. Part of it is getting in the room. And the other part is learning how to jujitsu the energy, right? <laughs> and like how to ultimately maneuver a situation to the advantage of the community. Mm -hmm. And there are allies out there and there are also companies that are not allies. And I, I think that, you know, their broader messaging usually makes it clear. HBO happens to be one of those great allies. And I'll just say that with every film, every show, everything I've worked on, it comes to fruition in its own unique way every time. And so it's helpful to know how other things have been created and been made, but mm -hmm. also know that things that you will bring into the world will come in in a completely unique configuration. Every project is its own constellation. And then also the other piece of it, as an artist, I also learned this early on, that once you create something, it has its own life that's not even connected to the author of it, right? Once something is out there, you also have to separate yourself and your ego. I think that's the bigger piece of what I'm mm -hmm. saying as well is like, let's not connect everything to 
ego, to being the first, to being the only, to being the one. Mm. Because ultimately, we get here from the support of a whole community of, of people, both in the human realm and in the spirit realm. And, you know, we each, each and every one of us represent a whole body of people. Yeah. One of the parts about collaboration, though, community is necessary. It is what gets us through. It's what creates meaning, right? Even Mm -hmm. in the context of making films like you just described. But one of the hard parts of community and where some projects can literally fall apart is when there are moments of tension or breakdown. And it's because that everyone working on the project feels really strongly about it. And they may have a different point of view or, you know, the network or the outlet that's paying for it or buying it has a really strong view. And, you know, we have kind of those moments. I'm wondering if there was a moment of breakdown on this project and how you got through it. Fabulous question. I always say yes. It's always a yes in collaboration, which is to say that if it's a yes, and maybe it's not a great idea, but if it's not a great idea, it will become clear to everybody in time. And if it's a yes, then it keeps the spirit of trying things out alive. And ultimately, things shake out and the good stuff rises to the top. Hmm. So that's my personal trick is to always iterate and always be in the spirit of, yes, let's try it. And that certainly helps when you're navigating bureaucracy. And it is hierarchical, but it doesn't need to be hierarchical in the creative process. I love watching the credits of films because it's like so many people contribute their art to make something possible. And on a film, you know, oftentimes it's hundreds or thousands of people in the case of big things. Mm -hmm. And to really honor everybody's ideas and contributions it makes the thing better. It makes the the entire thing better. Because I think people like to think that <laughs> that they're separate, but we're really interconnected. <laughs> and so it's like, how do you uplift everybody that you're working with so they are able to deliver their best work? And that's not hierarchical. It's very, you know, it's very egalitarian. It's very equal. So you go through this process of helping to shepherd this film through kind of all of the various things that you have to do in order to to make something like this work. Mm -hmm. And then you arrive at Sundance, right? This kind of showcase for amazing art that gathers artists and producers and, you know, outlets and people with money all in one place to say, you know, this is what's out there. And to say to everyone else in that community, this is honestly the best of the best. And I'm wondering for you that when Sundance said, this is among the best of the best for this year, what was that experience like for you? Wow. I mean, Sundance 2023 
with the stroll in Kokomo City and Mutt, there was a few trans films, you know, films made by trans people with trans people in front of the camera. And it felt epic. I had been to Sundance in 2020, right before the pandemic, for Disclosure. And I've been a part of this Hollywood game for 10 years. And it felt like we had arrived, truly. And I've also submitted films to Sundance, you know, for years, not only the things that people know, but plenty of smaller, you know, artist projects over the years. And just, it it was pure joy. We were able to bring several of our subjects with us, Cayenne Dorshow, Tabitha Gonzalez, Carrie Smith, and Izzy stars were all there. And Kristen, ugh, we, we, we saw the premiere of Kokomo City the first time it was seen by an audience of people. It is a, a memory that I will forever cherish. So in making the film, what did you learn about community? Making the stroll, we were very unobstructed. And it was a tight, unified team of us that were working every day. Kristen and I always say we were in the trenches together. I mean, we worked through an entire summer editing the stroll on Zoom to have it ready for a Sundance deadline. And... I think the challenges are often in the community. And Kristen had her own challenges navigating the dynamics of who was in the film and who felt left out and who felt maybe like they didn't have a voice in the story. And she can speak to that, but I think that we have so much healing to do as a community And yet we are in it together. (laughs) And we also have to kind of pace ourselves and slow down and step back when we need to. And it's inevitable that you will have challenges and difficult moments in filmmaking. And to know your triggers to know when things are hot and maybe I'm feeling too emotional to be a part of this conversation right now, but it is something that I can return to and maybe hold my reaction. That's very helpful, learning how to reserve comment and kind of wait until the feelings have passed and you are more able to show up as a good communicator. Lastly, realizing this has been a journey and when you are reflecting on the film, picking up on your idea that the product takes on a life of its own after you put it out into the world, what do you think has been the impact on the world from the stroll? What are the things that people have said that stand out to you one year later? I know that for me, I have 
had people tell me that the film brought them to tears, that the film validated their experience and their existence. And I'm always just struck with the incredible violence of erasure and the fact that the film helps to counteract that in really important ways, I think is one of the things that stands out. But for you as a filmmaker, what's sticking with you a year later in terms of what's different in the world as a result of the stroll? I hope that it it inspires folks to discover and search for the things they cannot see, the histories that have been erased, the things that have been concealed. We have such short attention spans, I think because of the immediacy of social media. I, I mean, I hope that people put their phones down and invest more deeply in where they are, their physical reality, their physical environments, their immediate communities, for folks to focus on what can they discover locally? (laughs) What can they discover in their own neighborhood, in their own families of origin, in their found families? So much to be learned from intergenerational fellowshipping, from talking to the legends in our communities to just understand who are we? Where do we come from? How is it that we are able to exist in this time with the freedom and the access that we have? Who blazed these trails for us? That is what inspires me about living in the future, just that we have infinite discoveries to make. And yeah, (laughs) I hope that the stroll inspires folks to bring more of those forgotten and erased stories back to the fore, back to our attention. And I'm excited to support and help create platforms for, for all those stories. Well, Zachary, thank you so much for joining us and for taking us inside of what happens in the process of a film and how it gets made. As I said to you before, I think that this documentary is brilliant and it's clear that there was quite a community behind it. So thank you so much. And this was certainly a different conversation than our talk last time about androsexuality. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But, But all the more rich. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amara, for spotlighting the stroll. Making this film changed my life. Learning these women's stories and being touched by the magic their resilience, their survival, their wisdom. It was really the gift of a lifetime. Of all the projects I've worked on, The Stroll has really changed my life. Thank you for that. That was director, producer, and artist, Zachary Drucker. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, 
a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm so honored to be joined by advocate, filmmaker, and director of The Stroll, Kristen Level. Kristen has been an advocate in the trans community for over 20 years. After coming out as trans at 15 years old and running away to New York City in the 1990s, she found work and community as a sex worker on The Stroll. She eventually co-founded Fierce, a member-led organization that builds the power and leadership of LGBTQ youth of color. Kristen and Fierce worked to challenge the gentrification of the meatpacking district in the 1990s and early 2000s, including documenting life on the stroll through film. After appearing as a subject in the documentary Queer Streets and creating her own documentary short film, Kristen joined forces with Zachary Drucker to make her first feature film, The Stroll. Kristen also worked as an actress in the Peabody Award-winning HBO series Random Acts of Flyness and co-produced the award-winning feature film The Garden Left Behind. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. So it's been one year since the smash of the stroll at Sundance. And I'm wondering one year later, how is it looking for you as you look over the past year? How's it feeling? Well, it feels amazing. I have been doing a lot of going to different schools and community events, doing screenings and having talkbacks. So I've met a lot of amazing people over the past year. I've done the most traveling that I have ever in my life. And now currently, you know, I'm just trying to like scope out new projects and new ideas. I currently even working with the taboo artificial intelligence and how to incorporate it into filmmaking. So it's been an exciting year. 2023 was one of the best years of my life, I must say. One of the things that I think is really profound about your film, and I hope that this is celebrated as much as it should be, but it's not only the story of the stroll, kind of this particular part of Manhattan, which was a place for sex work and particularly sex work for black and brown trans people, but a story of that place, but also your story and the story of others that were there, but also an economic history of New York during that time and moving forward and a political history. There are a lot of complicated layers that I think are done extremely well in The Stroll. And I'm wondering if that was something that you had conceived of from the beginning, or that's something that became clearer and clearer to you, kind of this link between these larger economic and political forces that both then created The Stroll, created the need for The Stroll, and then ultimately destroyed The Stroll. It was always my intent to capture the time frame in which I lived in, right? And there were a lot of things going on. I think, you know, as a young person, I couldn't really explain 
what was going on and which was why it was so important for me to learn these things and getting involved with certain you know, youth activist groups and social justice causes. And that's where my education really lies. I understood and witnessed firsthand the effects of Giuliani policing. I saw firsthand the aftermath of September 11th and what that brought, you know, to New York City and making it into this form of police state. New York City has still never fully recovered from those effects. And I think that policing has gotten way worse than it was before. Growing up, I didn't think of it in historical context. I don't think the past 20 years, United wasn't thinking of the, the historical implications of the past 20 years until recently. I'm now in my 40s and I'm like, well, these were significant events in time, you know, that we lived through. And all of these events impacted the stroll in some way, form or another, or the community in general. So it was it was definitely my intention to convey that via film. Yeah. I'm going to disagree with you slightly on that you didn't necessarily have a language when you were younger, because I think I first became aware of you when a friend of mine, actually a colleague, was covering Fierce and their fight to preserve space for Black and brown trans people to fight against the policing of the administration, as you mentioned, and to emphasize the need for um, greater opportunity. And my colleague at the time heard you speak, and I've distinctly remember them coming back and telling me about the speech that you gave once at the pier uh, when the city was developing it and all the rest of it. And it had, you know, especially overtones of analysis and reflection. So I think that's been something that you've had for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, as a young person and we're being involved in survival sex work and and on the streets, we don't look at it that way, though, because we're in survival mode. You know what I mean? So thank you. That's such a long time ago. But there were just so many things that impacted us, homelessness, survival sex work, violence. And so to me, it was just everyday survival. I never really thought about it in those contexts when I think about the early days of Fierce and, you know, at the time, you know, being the only... Black trans woman who was on the streets sex working and experiencing homelessness and sharing those stories with my peers that were still in high school or exploring their sexuality or gender and stuff. So I always felt like I had was on the front lines, that I was experiencing incarceration, I was experiencing homelessness, I was experiencing all these things that impact us as a community. Yeah. And especially in like the late 90s and early 2000s, We were just starting to develop that language, but at the time, I didn't know that it was an actual language or, you know, what it was we were actually working towards. You understand what I mean in terms of, like, you're just in it. You're not really... Thinking about it. You're just doing it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's really powerful for me in the film, and I think that it will stand the test of time in so many ways, but just the inkling that you had an understanding that you always wanted to tell the story of the stroll. So you began to record video early on, well before the idea of the specific documentary crystallized and was about taking down stories in order to preserve this history. And so many people think that their own personal stories aren't important. And I mean, regardless of their background in life. And I'm wondering if you had a sense of what made you realize that your life was worth 
telling. And that you, from the earliest days of being out on the stroll, were looking at how are we going to preserve this history and tell these stories? Wonderful question. I think when I realized it is the importance of storytelling. And it, it took my, my friend and photographer, Samantha Box, for me to realize that. Because at the time, we weren't looking to be documented we were still looking for acceptance. You know, we were still on survival mode and the only opportunities afforded to us was sex work, really. Like, it was really hard to break into something else other than sex work, you know, especially living in New York City. Like, it was just something that was historically passed down to us. Like, you're a girl, this is what you do. This is how we survive, my thing, because no one's going to give you this job. No one's going to hand anything to you. You got to go and make the best of what life gives you. By the time that I started taking cameras down there with me, you know, I mean, I attempted in other ways and forms. Like I remember in 2000, was it? No, not 2000, 1999, matter of fact. And it was us early fiercers. And I took a camera out to Canal Street and I was asking people, what did they think about trans people? And the funny thing was, nobody wanted to respond to me. Everybody scoffed at me and just kept on walking. Nobody answered the question whatsoever. And that tape got lost through time. And I, I still wish that I had that tape from then because it was so important to how society viewed us then and this experience of trans representation and visibility that we see now and all these conversations and stuff that we're having, it's amazing that I get to witness all of this. And so when Sam was following me, I was already going on 10 years on the stroll. And I've seen so much that I didn't know when my time was going to end. And so I wanted to kind of leave something to, to at least say that I was here. So I allowed Samantha to take the pictures and then, you know, meeting other young people and some of them were involved with the filmmakers that ended up doing Queer Streets. And when they came to me, it was like, you know, oh, we want to follow you. And I knew that that would bring me problems as well as like at that time when I started bringing cameras out there, it was getting harder and harder for me to pull a date. Like that's the girl that's always got the cameras with her or something. All the other girls stayed away from me as well, you know? So it was, it was an interesting time because visibility it wasn't the agenda at the time. Everybody was more so worried about fitting and blending in and not being known specifically as you know, a trans person. Yeah. So I knew it was important then. And plus, you know, I was already starting to become mobilized. We had already started establishing fears and we were involved with Cop Watch and I would go and I would report my interactions with the police. Every time I got out of Rikers Island, I would, you know, talk to my fellow fierce cohorts about the conditions on Rikers Island. And and in those days, in those early days of like meeting Sylvia Rivera, listening to her stories and understanding that, you know, we all have stories, but if I don't tell my story, how do people know the things that are impacting us, the things that, you know, keep us oppressed? So right. it was important for me to step forward. Yeah, it's that, that link between that storytelling is actually a mode of survival, right? I think that that's one of the things that I am getting from your connection that somehow it was linked to you 
deriving meaning, creating a better future, creating memory, even in the earliest days. One of the stories that Zachary, who produces, tells is that one of the ways that this even got made, and this was an irony to me, is that I believe it was at an opening of the Whitney or very early on, which is this world-famous museum that's literally put, plopped down in where the stroll was near a place where you said, you know, I can't believe how many nights I had to be homeless so this place could be built. It's one of the lines that sticks with me. But someone was talking about kind of the area and you raised your hand at this moment and said, but there's an entire history of this place that's basically being ignored. And that's one of the ways in which you connected and began to get traction. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that and what kind of drove you to say something in that moment, because it's a pivotal kind of story. Well, honestly, because of the events on the stroll, I was in community, but outside of community. I was more the observer than being, you know, the one always at the forefront. And that night, my fierce cohort let me know my role and everything. And I thought, you know, wow, because I was in the audience. I wasn't on the panel, right. you know, and they made sure that I had a voice that night. And as the conversation went along, I stated, you know, the story of Fenced Out, if you've seen it, it's on YouTube. And it was part of what us fierce and neutral zone young people worked for in the early 2000s. And they were showing it at the Whitney Biennial 19. And I stood up and I was like, you know, this beautiful museum is sitting here on a spot where my trans sisters used to sleep in cardboard boxes for years. This story is broader than just the events on that pier. It's this meatpacking district, the history of this city. I spoke with Matt Wolf, my producer, afterwards, and I was like, I've been gathering images of sex workers in the meatpacking district because at the time, like now it's been 14 years ago, we started a Facebook group and, you know, the girls were adding and, and Facebook was such a powerful tool in keeping us all interconnected. It started with MySpace and somehow like, what was it that all of us girls from the stroll that would see each other and came from different walks of life? We add each other on Facebook <laughs> and we're still connected, you know, 20 something years later. And I thought that was amazing. And that itself was a story. And so I, I was determined to tell the story of the stroll. What's it been for you to be a person who was so long marginalized, overlooked, you know, even at the beginning, people, as you say, weren't trying to talk to you, to suddenly in the last year, interacting and interfacing with these major mainstream platforms like Sundance and HBO. I'm wondering how you you balance that. Because at some point in the process of telling our stories, there may be other people who are listening who will have to interact with uh, major platforms as you are describing. And I'm wondering how you navigated all of that. It was a learning process day by day. <laughs> And it still is kind of, I think, every interaction that I have working in this industry. Thankfully, you know, I co-produced a film before we did the stroll and it was called The Garden Left Behind. And we won at South by Southwest in 2019. And so, you know, that project took about a good six years to make it to South by Southwest. And... I had 
the wonderful experience of being sort of the mentee of the director, Flavio Alves, who basically trained me for all of this, understudying him in terms of like being engaged and being immersed in the whole process of filmmaking from start to finish. Without that invaluable education, I <laughs> I don't know. Like I I'm I'm grateful for it. And it trained me for the business because you have to learn the business in order to maneuver through it, you know, and it was a learning process. It took me a good six years of, of that kind of film school to understand the dynamics of getting to those platforms. You know, before HBO got involved as a, an independent filmmaker, you're going to have to do the grind. You're going to have to write up these grants. You're going to have to do all of the administrative work to pitch your film or to build a crew. And so I'm glad that I learned all of those things before we got to HBO because then I was a little bit more experienced and aware of the process and what was going to happen, you know? Yeah, you have to learn the craft of everything. Yes. I'm also wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the importance of a vision and sticking to a vision in the creative process. I mean, this is an idea that you have held on to for two decades. And a part of that is believing in your essential vision. And I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about the importance of vision in making things happen. It's something that I'm still learning to master. Like I said, when you're in the middle of things, you're not really thinking about, I mean, you think about the outcome, right? But you're not sure of it. It's not set in stone the outcome that you wish it could be. I think persistence is um, one of my strong traits. I think I can be a very persistent person. I think I just never gave up on the idea or the possibility that it could happen. I think a lot of people underestimated and took me for granted in terms of ability. And so that was sort of like the driving force, you know, being the kind of underdog of it all, because you believe in yourself more than others can believe in you, right? And so I think I just never let anybody steer my mindset astray in terms of what I can do and what I'm capable of. And so it's important now, like trying to keep you down or are always negative in terms of how they speak to you and how they react to certain situations that I try to just clear a path for <laughs> because it's, it's that type of energy. I may seem like I'm extroverted, but I'm really an introvert. So in my solitude, I'm always just like trying to manifest goals and figure out plans. Like I had a five-year plan. I didn't know if it was going to work, but it worked. So am I lucky or was that hard work, determination? I don't know. Probably both. A little bit of both. <laughs> Lastly, I'm wondering if you can just talk to us about why it's important for trans people to be at places like Sundance, talking about our creative vision and getting people to buy into it. Why are these these arenas and platforms, which traditionally have not included our stories, but increasingly are, why is it important that we're there? Why was it important that you were at Sundance? I think when we, whenever I hear filmmakers talk about their films and talking about human experiences and, you know, 
harbingers for specific types of changes and building culture. And that trans has been so invisible that it was important to show us as human beings because, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of things that I hear that are just like above and beyond exactly who we are, you know? And so it was important to, you know, to show that human experience that we are here, you know, you talk about us all the time, but you don't want to hear from us. And so it was important to hear from us and hear our stories. And so when you get to these platforms that have historically left us out, and for me, mission was completed, right? Because when I came into filmmaking and stuff, it was to challenge the media to change how they tell stories about us right? Or allowing us, I don't even want to say allow, because I didn't let anybody allow me to do anything because I was going to do it, you know, one way or another. But it's important to have it on this platforms, you know, to show us as human beings, to show that, I don't even want to say like everybody else, but that we're here, that we're visible and we're not going to not be visible again. It's important to uplift these narratives. And I was also getting a little ticked off about how we were becoming like these cookie cutter images, right? Like we're telling these stories, but, you know, we want these nice, wholesome stories and stuff, but that's not, you know, nice, wholesome stories. That's great, you know, but we have real, we go through real life shit and we do real life things, right? And so those stories need to be reflected too, because I noticed there was an, uh, we're not going to talk about sex workers. And I would hear other trans, well, well, that wasn't my experience as if it was beneath them. And I'm like, excuse me, but you know, you wouldn't be where you're at right now with this level of freedom if it wasn't off of the back of sex workers. So you can't tell authentic trans stories without uplifting the narratives of trans sex workers. doesn't make any sense. That's a part of our culture. It's a part of our movement in terms of like fighting for basic needs and like housing, healthcare, you know, the ability right. to work. This is all off of the backs of sex workers who wanted these things. I wanted to work. So I had to go out and even if I was getting rejected, I was going to go and fill out that application anyway. If, as far as acting and, and getting into film, I didn't care if I got cast or not. I went on audition just to say that I did it. You know what I mean? And, and didn't care if I was going to get cast or not, but just to, to be that trans woman in the room doing those things. And it's important. So whenever the world was trying to close a door and yet they kicked that shit open. Well, I think that you've definitely kicked it open. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Check. You know, with the tremendous year that you had starting at Sundance, going into the HBO launch, all of the accolades and the brilliant reception that your film has had. You know, I I haven't spoken to a person yet who's seen it who said that there wasn't something about it that moved them to tears. And the fact that you've done all of that in these major places, I, I think you've kicked the door down. Oh, thank you. I hope so. There's still some more doors to kick down, but... Well, like Taraji <laughs> said, right, even when you kick them down, you have to keep kicking them down. That's the hard part. Right. It doesn't end. But I think that everyone who hears you today and has seen your work knows that you're going to have every capability to keep knocking down doors and are all so excited to see what else you do. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was advocate and filmmaker Kristen Lovell. 
Thank you so much for joining me on the Translash podcast. I'll listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You'll help us with all those haters. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcast. Check us out on the web at Translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on X and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash Podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Xander Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Brennan Beckwith is our social media producer. And digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash Podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. This week, I'm looking forward to going to Creating Change in New Orleans, where I will be moderating a panel on democracy and how it intersects with LGBTQ rights. So if you're at Creating Change, make sure that you come to my little panel. If you are not at Creating Change, but you're going to be watching remotely, then please do that as well. Uh, We will be taking questions from everyone. Uh, But overall, if you are at Creating Change, Please feel free to say hi to me if you see me wandering about, especially at one of the amazing restaurants in New Orleans, which I will be taking advantage of.